Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April 16th, 2013. This is episode 1112 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a two-parter for you guys today. Um, I mentioned last week that I'm going to be part of a workshop in Helena, Montana with Dave Jackie, who is the author of Edible Forest Gardens. It's a two-book series, uh, probably the most extensive research project ever done on developing forest gardens and food forests, uh, especially certainly put into print. I put Dave on par with folks like Jeff Lawton, who we had on yesterday. I don't have Dave for you today. I have a, a young lady named Jessica Peterson who is running a works running the workshop in Helena in July. I will be there for the five day intensive course, uh, one end to the other, as we design the second ever uh, edible forest garden in uh, U.S. on on public property. The first one having been Seattle, Washington. So we're going to be part of that, and you're going to hear all about it today. From there, I'm going to then take some of the overflow questions that came in for Jeff Lawton that we didn't get to yesterday. He was on for over an hour. He was on for about uh, 30 minutes with me personally before that to discuss how we can do a workshop eventually and things like that and some things about my personal property. At that point, uh, I know he was getting pinged in all different directions for his day to start. He was talking to us like as the sun came up. I actually had him on video, and when he first started, I could barely see him. And then by the end of the interview, the light was full on to give you an idea of the you know the the effort he makes to be on a show like this and fit it into his day. So um, I'm going to take those overflow questions. I'm sure I will not do the job Jeff may have done with them. Uh, but I will do the best that I can so that people feel that their questions have been answered. I don't think even I can get to all of them. I'd say there were about 35 questions, and like all of them were good. Uh, some of you guys buried nine questions into one, so there's actually a lot more than that. I'll try to get uh, you guys the best, most concise answers I can, and maybe go with a little less detail and a little bit more quantity today on those. That will follow Jessica's interview. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, westernbotanicals.com. You know, I really wanted to have, as part of our sponsor lineup, someone that was in the herbal supplement world. It's such a big part of my life. My problem initially was, well, who am I going to find? Because everybody's either a network marketing Ponzi thing or uh, they're, you know, they're making all kinds of ridiculous claims or they're overpriced or they're really big companies that didn't want to talk to TSP way back in the day when Western Botanicals came on as a sponsor. Then I found Western Botanicals. And I found a company of real people right here in America that would answer the phone and talk to you and help you make a great decision I found a company that when you needed something, you said, well, you know, I have this problem. They'd say, yeah, you probably need to go to a doctor for that uh, and had that integrity. And I found a company that not only is reasonably priced uh, but would be a strong supporter of the show as a sponsor and as an MSB member where they give away their discount membership for free. And I found a company where all of the products were either organically grown or wild crafted. And I found a company where if I could think of it, I could find it. 
that's a tall order. If I said, this is what I want, I would have never even been able to believe that I would have found it. I just knew I wanted something, and when I found Western Botanicals, I knew they were the right company for this audience. And for myself, I am a Western Botanicals customer. We use their products all the time. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com, and if you're not sure what you need, pick up the phone and call them. There's real people there that really care about you that will help you make the right choice for you. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been a reader and subscriber uh, to Backwoods Home since 1993 when I got out of the United United States Army. I came to the uh, big city of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I was just a country boy that was, you know, kind of missing the the country, uh, having grown up in the you know Appalachian area of uh, of Pennsylvania. And I needed a, a city so I could get a job and have income and all that stuff. But you know, one of the things I would do is I would walk to the bookstore to save money instead of driving my little car that I had at the time because I was dead broke. And I found this magazine called Backwoods Home. And uh, as soon as I actually got a job, I stopped, you know, drinking a coffee at at the bookstore and reading the entire magazine, and then putting it back on the shelf and became a subscriber. And I've been a subscriber and a reader ever since. And today I get to work with people like Dave Duffy, uh, John Silvera, Jackie Clay, uh, Masada Yub, all of these people who I read for years and years and years. Uh, and was able to gain a lot of the knowledge that I share with you guys. If you guys want to know where are the roots of my knowledge, they go from practical experience and they go from research. And the part of my research over a decade and a half has been the work being done by the staff at Backwoods Home. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. Uh, next up, remember, check out TSP Mint. We are back open and, and selling again. We are all caught up on back orders. I think we've gotten all of the, uh, the, the speed bump out of the way there with TSP Mint. So we have some really cool stuff. And silver's on sale right now. It's dirt cheap. Check it out today, tspmint.com. And check out the TSP Gear Shop. Check out 13skills.com, the Walking to Freedom Forum. Check it all out. Come on over. We would love to have you. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like paramedics, firefighters, and EMTs. All of you guys qualify for a service discount. Just email me with the service discount on the subject line. Tell me very quickly who you are and what you're doing, and uh, I will respond to you with uh, a discount code. Thank you for your service. With that wrapped up, Let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And what I'd like to do first today is I would like to introduce our special guest, uh, Jessica Peterson uh, from Helena, Montana, from Inside Edge Designs, who's going to talk to us about the Dave Jackie Workshop, how you guys can be part of it, and the limited seating that is still available. Uh, and with that, hey, Jessica, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Hey, um, I wanted you to just kind of just start out with, uh, you know, who you guys are. You, you're part of a company called Inside Edge Design up there in the wilds of Montana, where if I was allowed to move 2,000 miles away from Texas, that's probably where we would be. So what do you guys got going on up there? Sure. Um, so my colleague Caroline Wallace and I, are we formed a partnership about a year ago, and she's a landscape designer and has done some community organizing. And then I am a social economist who got into permaculture maybe about four years ago, but stemming from some beliefs that I had about how we can have local resiliency and, and what's really important, which is how we can use the resources within our own area and in a sustainable long-term way. Uh, so my background is doing a lot of 
you know, you, you could call it marketing, communications, um, but essentially bringing about community change in various areas. And so we're, we're merging our skill sets and I'm, I'm starting to do more design and she's doing a little bit more of the community organizing and getting information pieces out. Um, but we're both trying to bring about changes just in this community that we live in and, and particularly around food sustainability and um, energy resilience and all of these things that are, of course, within a, a permaculture framework. You know, I, I love what you're doing with that and the way you're accomplishing it, because if we start getting into this at a global scale, all types of politics come into it. Everybody squares off into a corner. But when you want to make sure there's more food in your backyard, nobody seems to have a problem with that. When you start talking about how do we increase energy resiliency right in your own backyard, everybody seems to be like, well, that would be a good idea. Exactly. Um, so, so it seems like that's the place to be focused on right now. Anyway, everything else is just talk, but what we can all do is what we can do in our own backyard. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Now, you've got something going that is a pretty big change as far as I'm concerned. Uh, my audience was really jazzed and excited about the fact that uh, Seattle put in, I think, a two-acre forest garden. Yeah. And uh, you guys have, who I consider like the master of forest gardening, at least in North America, uh, coming up there, Dave Jackie. And you guys are going to be doing something similar uh, in uh, Helena, Montana. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, we have a 1.1 acre space. It's a public park. It's it's managed by our um, Parks and Recreation here in Helena. And, so just to be clear, is it the city that manages that park? So it's a city it's park. It's the city. It's the city of Helena. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a, about nine months ago, they were talking about it being a community garden. And my colleague and I and um, a handful of other people who are who know about Dave Jackie and permaculture and uh, edible forest gardens pitched an idea to them that essentially added on to the concept of community gardens. And what we added on was uh, an edible forest garden that would be working in tandem with the community gardens, of course, um, creating a more sustainable system. Uh, getting the the veggies to grow even bigger and be more prolific um, and having that whole symbiosis take place. And because of all the work that people have done for the past 10 years in getting community gardens to be this acceptable, normal thing in our community, it was it was pretty easy for us to for the parks to say, um, hey, yeah, let's give that a try because they're interested in their with their urban a forestry program to start getting rid of some of the monoculture of trees that's been planted here and start really experimenting with what might work uh, in our community uh, with more diverse trees and particularly edible trees. Um, and so Dave Jackie agreed to come and design this park for us. And what we wanted to do as well, there's, there's such a, a dearth of information in terms of zone four guilds and polycultures and polycultures are to a degree a mystery as as we develop um, information in all parts of the United States and the world as to what polycultures work best um, but we essentially are, are really excited about developing uh, guilds and polycultures that are uh, zone three zone four uh, pretty dry climate and Dave's going to come here and do that and then we have this whole community process where we're drawing together um, all the local knowledge as to what perennial plants work here 
um, pulling in from just our local gardeners, our local um, arborists, um, also some Native Americans who know the history of this place and what grew here perennially um, hundreds of years ago, and basically pulling that into a design process um, that we want people to come and be a part of from all over and then take that back to their own communities and be able to uh, develop their own systems within the framework that Dave Jackie teaches, the design process he teaches, which is a, an amazing process. Now, you know, you mentioned like the community garden thing there and expanding out into forest gardens. To me, this has always been like I'm, I'm very excited to see this because I have always struggled with this actually, to me, should have come first, not because of the reason you and I would give with sustainability and all. From a management standpoint, properly yeah. properly installed, uh, whether you're talking about a forest garden on a smaller scale or even a massive scale where you would call it truly a food forest, um, there's a lot less work. There's a lot less upkeep. There's a lot less maintenance. And what if nobody picks the food? Oh, gee, it falls to the ground, propagates more, and creates a nutrient flow. So exactly. it seems to me, obviously, you know, and I actually was approached by a, a school teacher one time about putting a garden in, and I said, we could do that, but I think it would make a lot more sense to put in a small forest garden at a school, because who's going to take care of it from June through September when no one's there? Right. And that's a huge issue we run into in Helena, Montana, where uh, teachers, yeah, everyone leaves for the summer, and actually the maintenance guys don't want to take care of it either unless one of them has a, you know, a bug for gardening. Uh, and that's, you know, one guy out of 33 schools. And so you end up having a lot of issues come up that don't come up with an established food forest. And that is the whole point of it is that it, it becomes, if you design properly, which is what Dave is going to teach us about, um, you'll have a largely self-maintaining garden uh, while at the same time creating a healthier ecosystem, while at the same time producing higher yields of, as he calls it, uh, I think it's seven Fs, the food, fuel, fiber, fodder, uh, fertilizer, pharmaceutical, spelled with an F, and fun. <laughs> awesome. So, I mean, when I heard about this, I really didn't even read all the particulars. I just went, okay, Dave Jackie's going to be designing uh, a public food forest. As far as I know, this is the second one in the United States, and I can go. So what's the longest period of time I can be involved with this? And it was like five and a half days. And I'm like, okay, that's it. I'm signing up for that, and I signed up. Um, but then you called me and explained there was this whole different level, you know, different areas that people could participate in. Um, so could you kind of explain the options that are open and available for people that would like to attend all or part of this and what they would get out of each different option? Sure. Um, so we have initially a public talk that Dave Jackie is giving on July 9th. Um, and for that public talk, um, he's going to introduce the concept of forest gardening, lay out the essence of the idea, and then its implications specifically for our six ward park gardens. Now, that's a little bit more of a local thing because you're just, you know, it's one night. Um, and so people aren't going to probably fly in for that, although you're welcome to. Um, then we've got a five day workshop uh, where we're going to have both a, a design charrette um, and a and a polyculture practicum. And the design charrette is essentially a real design process that participants get to be a part of with Dave and really learn the nuts and bolts of what goes into a design. So you're getting the, uh, the philosophies and the design processes towards schematic design, 
guild polycultures uh, that you can take back to your community. But what you're also getting is the actual know-how of how it is that people relate to each other during this process and how it is that decisions are actually made um, when you go in to do a design. And particularly on a public scale like this, there's a lot of stakeholders who are at the table and, and have their own goals and ways that they want things to go. And, and the reality is, is that you have to um, figure out how all those things work together. And that's something that Dave teaches as well and is, is really unique um, in his ability to teach that to others. So um, the five-day process essentially is there's three days of, um, you know, getting some basic schematic designs together um, that are based on the goals and the plants that work in our area, in our bioregion here. And then on Friday night, we have a big community dinner, and we share the initial schematic designs with the community while eating together, and the community provides feedback on those designs that have been presented to them. Uh, what happens after that then is you Saturday, Sunday, take that feedback and do really intensive uh, polyculture design and um, getting at some of the, maybe the goals that we didn't catch in that first round or that the community sort of came in and said, you know, we'd really like to see this now that you've shown us um, you know, these elements and these pieces and, and hammer together an actual real design by Sunday, 5 p.m. Um, and, and anyone who's involved in this process gets listed as a um, team member for the design uh, that along with Dave Jackie and then we'll be sending an electronic copy of the final map. Uh, so anyone who comes to be a part of that design will will get to be They'll, they'll have this in their portfolio as a design that they worked on, which is, of course, really helpful when you're going into your community and uh, presenting an idea. Do you have a physical uh, do you have a physical map of something that you've done so you can prove to people that this is something that works and that you've worked on before? Um, so that's the five day process. The weekend process is or the weekend um, workshop, I guess, is that starts on Friday night and. And people can, people will fly in or drive in on Friday to be a part of that dinner. And then they get incorporated into the practicum where, whereby we start uh, the process of incorporating the feedback in and finalizing this design. And the weekend is really the polyculture focus, um, where we're going to, um, really parse out the plants uh, that are where they're going to go, how it is that they're working together, why we're putting them together, um, and come out with that design in the end. And so there's there's two there's two different ways that you can do it. If you only have the time or the resources to do a weekend, you can come in for that. If you've got the time uh, and the resources and you want to come for the full five days, you've got that option as well. And I think we've got five. Or, sorry, we have. Um, seven or eight full slots left for the five day and we've got about eight left for the weekend um and we're also doing a promotion right now on permies.com where you can go in and ask dave questions and so you can go in and you can you can go to permies.com on the forum and and ask him questions too about this workshop and what it's going to be so it's a really great time to find out more about this uh, not only from me but from the horse's mouth of who's going to be teaching it, which is Dave Jackie. 
Uh, now, people that are coming for the five-day, five-and-a-half-day thing, I guess is the way to put it, 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 just to kind of give people a heads up with that, it's a time commitment. It's a it's a financial commitment. It's not huge. I think it's like seven hundred bucks, but it's it's a significant. But it, part of that is because this is a limited number of people, and this is a somewhat advanced uh, course of work, let's say. So the people that come for the full thing, it would probably be better if they had at least a, a solid fundamental understanding of permaculture and forest layers and things like that. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think uh, we're not requiring people to have that, but I would say having a basic knowledge of a, a permaculture framework, uh, definitely go and, and look at some of Dave's work, read his book if you can. Um, it's a pretty extensive book, but if you you know read volume one and understood the philosophy behind a lot of the practices that Dave will be teaching at this workshop, it'll definitely be in your favor. Um, now, the weekend course is something where more of the, the layperson can come in uh, and really benefit because there will be people will be divided into teams and there will be team leaders who are very familiar with Dave Jackie's practices, are very familiar um, and have worked with permaculture for a little while. And so that's a really good time to, to actually learn about those process, learn about permaculture and, um, and maybe even just get your feet wet there. But I, I, I think that for the first people coming for the first um, part of it for the full five days, it's good to uh, have some some permaculture tools on your belt already. Very cool. And and where can people go to sign up for this? They can go to www.insideedgedesigners.com, um, and you can also uh, Google Inside Edge Design Helena Montana, and you'll find us. And I think you've actually got a link to our website up on your page now. Um, and you can also go to the permies.com forum and, and find our link through that. And I'll make sure I have links to all of that stuff in today's show notes so that it's easy for people to find. Uh, of course, today's episode is 11:12. So, uh, if you're listening to this in the future and if there's still spots available, uh, the episode you want to pull up for reference is 1112. And, uh, hey, Jessica, thanks for being with us today on, uh, the survival podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure. It's been fun. So I think this is going to be an incredible opportunity. I appreciate Jessica taking the time to be with us today, and I wanted to get that information to you guys. And remember, you can come up there and meet me. I think one thing that we kind of glossed over in the interview that I do want to point out, those of you who are trying to get things done at the local level, the county level, the city level, things like that, in your own backyard that are trying to say, hey, look, you know, we, we, we are spending all kinds of money on worthless crap and we're spending money on this park anyway. Maybe we should plant a few fruit trees there. The thing to understand is that you can be a world class designer. You could have done this for a thousand clients across the world. If you haven't been on, if you haven't touched something with government in it, government people are afraid of it. Uh, being listed as a co-team design member alongside Dave Jackie with an actual public works project may open the door. I'm not guaranteeing, but it may open the door to do things like that in your own backyard. Um, and, you know, with this audience, whenever sustainability comes up, especially with parks and recreation and things like that, it's Agenda 21. No, 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 it's not. And the way that you 
make sure that Agenda 21, which I do believe is a real thing because it's published on the UN website, the way that you make sure Agenda 21 doesn't get its feet, its teeth and claws into the American populace is we do this stuff ourselves, our own way, in a way that is beneficial to our own citizens rather than wait for somebody to do it for us. So those of you that have the foil cap on a bit too tight about that little thing, Let it go. Not everything sustainable, environmentally friendly, etc. is Agenda 21. I don't care what Glenn Beck may have told you about that. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into uh, your questions for Jeff Lawton. And uh, the, the I'm going to do, again, my very best to answer them uh, for you to the best of my ability. Uh, and I will trunctuate some things. And some of you guys have cheated and put 10 questions in. You might only get one or two. And I still don't think I'll cover them all. And if you don't get yours covered, it's not because you weren't worthy. It's because either I didn't have the right answer for you, I didn't think my answer was good enough for you, or I just didn't get to you due to volume. So let's go ahead and take the first one. Okay, here's a question from uh, Richard in Texas. Uh, Richard says, I'm just beginning my land search. I'm hoping to become a permaculture farmer, and I'm contemplating a 30 to 100 acres in size. I'm considering the eastern area of Texas or central Missouri. How does one optimize for topsoil available markets and land price? Land that has little topsoil, rainfall, gravel, and rock far away from any population is cheap. I know I can build topsoil, but I'm not young enough to want to start it from scratch. A property that has several feet of topsoil seems double the price. In addition, as you move closer to the city, the price goes up in an exponential way. I want to be able to market produce and meat without having to truck it two hours to the nearest city, but there is a sweet spot in there somewhere. Please help me find it. And the answer is it depends, which Richard says. I understand the answer depends. But what is your experience? What would you prefer to deal with? Okay, so this is how I would look at it. Your optimum piece of property that you want to do this with is probably neither nor um, because the way that farmland is selling right now, deep, rich topsoil is selling at a huge premium. And despite what Jeff said about you know rehabbing land that's been commercially farmed and had a lot of herbicide dumped on it, if you can avoid it, you, you might want to do that. And most of your good ag land is going to have had that experience. So... What I would look for in a property is mostly what you saw on Jeff's checklist. I would not so much focus on what's the topsoil like. I would look at is there any at all? What's the subsoil like? Um, if you have the freedom to, to have a lot of choice in where you're going to look and you want to be somewhere in Texas, I would start looking east of Dallas-Fort Worth. There's a lot of little towns and things out that way, and getting produce back into the Metroplex is a good market. Uh, isn't that hard to do? Um, even a couple, you know, a couple, a couple hours, but I mean, to, to get the land price to fall off, you may need to be in that range. I would stay out of my neck of the woods and west of here if you want to stay away from gravel and rock. I would look a lot at the subsoil. Um, I would want to go in and actually uh, maybe dig down a few feet and see what's down there. If it's clay, you're in luck if that's what's down in your subsoil because you'll be able to put in a lot of water, and that's really going to be key to success in a southern climate. Missouri, I, I don't know the areas, but there's a lot of that kind of dynamic as well. You get over toward the Ozarks, you get all this rock and granite and stuff, and it's a lot tougher of an environment to work in, especially in a hot climate like Missouri where a lot of folks are able to, to pull this off with a lot of granite around them in places like Vermont and New Hampshire because they have such a humid dew drop every night and there's a lot more forgiving climate, even though the growing season is, is relatively short. It's got long days and it's a moderate 
uh, type of climate. So either of the states you're looking in has this harsh summer. Uh, you'd call it a wet spring, uh, a, a wet fall. A, a, I'd call it a, a moist fall and a wet winter and a very dry, hot, hard summer. So developing the depth. Building topsoil is something you can only do so fast. Now, building topsoil in an acre of an intensively managed space is fine. Doing it in what you'd call the broad acre is a lot more difficult. Some of this, though, is going to be highly dependent upon, well, what the hell are you going to do, right? Now, let me tell you my view of going into farming, ranching, permaculturing as a business in this day and age, the harsh reality. If you're planning on selling a bunch of fruit, nuts, and produce, you're going to get your ass kicked financially. That has to be a byproduct of what you're doing. The, the focus should probably be animals and animal protein, maybe fish and fish ponds. So I would be thinking more along the lines of a food forest sheltering uh, an animal-centric system because the meat sells at a premium, fish sells at a premium. And if you build the type of, of environment that Jeff was demonstrating that can be done with design, you have yet another form of income, which is ecotourism and bringing people out to see the place. You also have the opportunity for value add and educational dollars. If you want to go into business in the permaculture, natural growing world today, and you do it only as my income will be based on the food that I produce, and that food will primarily be vegetable matter, I think you are setting yourself up for financial hardship. I think that those days are, are long behind us when a farmer could make money just selling corn. And I know that a permaculturist is going to say, well, I'm not going to just sell corn. It's an analog, okay? What we need in any business that's going to survive the modern age is multiple streams of income. So the proper farm, I would set up with some additional housing. I would bring in woofers, worldwide opportunities on organic farms to work the property at little to no money for the learning experience. Even if they don't work really hard, I would bring them in to cause you to have something called freedom. So at least they can move the geese. So they, you see what I'm saying? Right? So that you can actually leave once in a while and have this stuff taken care of. I would slowly build up some additional small housing, some cabins, even if there's something the size of like a, a shed with a small window. And don't try to be all off grid, right? Because you want people to be comfortable, right? So that people can come and spend two weeks on your on your operation and, and just pay you to do that. Now there's another stream of income. Doing workshops where you're actually teaching people to do it themselves. Now there's another stream of income. The produce, the food, the output is an additional source of income. And I think unless you're doing things that way right now, you're really – so I know that's not what the, the heart of your question is, but whenever I hear somebody, I want to become a farmer – I start thinking, if you think that you're going to make a bunch of money bringing tomatoes and peppers and lettuce to market, that's not really what I would do on 30 acres in a permaculture farm outside of a city. If I wanted to make money selling vegetables today, I would look for land that is unappreciated right dead in the suburban urban area. Something where you're two or three miles from 20 different you know, family-owned restaurants, and I would sell into that gourmet sector if you want to make money on lettuce and tomatoes and peppers, if, and you know maybe some eggs and some rabbit meat and things like that. If you want to make money on a wholesale large operation, 
Today, you either need to have some other source of income while you give it time to, to come up to, to production, or you need to put in this, this whole holistic system that's going to provide a variety of income opportunities. You got enough dams in there? You got fishing. There will be people that if you had, you know, 30 acres, and four or five acres of water stocked with channel cats, and they could come out and give you a couple hundred bucks to spend a weekend and fish your ponds and be in that beautiful environment and watch the ducks quack and the geese run around and things like that, they would pay you for that, right? And then that's a whole other... So this is the marketing side of things. I know I've gone long on this one, but I, whenever I hear somebody say the words, I want to become a farmer or a permaculture farmer... I have a great deal of fear that you're going to act on all of the great information I gave you without understanding the financial side. So as far as the topsoil, which was the original question, I'm looking for the place where there's some soil to work with so I don't have to start with nothing. And I want to look for places that I can build very, very rapidly. And if you get that forest into the higher ground, it has its own nutrient cycle, and you can control that nutrient cycle down. But I would not, for an operation like this, buy 30 acres where you go out and look and go, nothing is going to grow there for 10 years. You can go faster than that, but it's a lot more work and it's a lot harder. So I would look for the land that has the soil, but maybe it's in like a five-year regrowth where you don't mind removing a lot of the scrub forest and things like that out of it. And I would do that removal a lot with animals. I would bring in cattle to do a lot of that work for me. Open that up, start creating a savanna, and use that and build off of it. I would not attempt to go out and buy a place that's all gravel topsoil and, and try to turn that into a 30-acre permaculture farm. You're really swimming upstream at that point. Let's take another one. Here's an interesting one. It's not even a problem. Uh, this is from uh, John and uh, Teresa in Canada. Uh, please ask Jeff during your Sunday interview, what can take the place of swales in an urban landscape when the purchaser is not allowed to dig on contour because utility lines are buried 18 inches deep in hard-packed clay soil? What's your problem? I'm just kidding you there, John and Teresa. But let's, seriously, what's your problem? Okay, why do you think the swale needs to... You're, you're doing an urban garden. Why do you think the swale needs to be 18 inches deep? I mean, a 10-inch swale would do plenty in an urban garden scenario. We don't even need to go 10 inches. Look at the contour-based wood core beds that I'm building. Um, I am digging a trench about 12 inches deep that I'm putting in my wood. Build a 6-inch trench, fill it with wood chips instead of lumber, cover it over and build your raised bed on top of it, do that on contour, remove 2 inches of soil between the beds, lay a whole layer of mulch over there, no problem. Um, other things that could be done is simply building raised beds on contour. Don't even dig down. Don't even dig down. Just mark your – the contours are there. We. This is something I – this is one of those things with the visuals in the Jeff's videos I think is very important to understand. We don't create contour when we create swales or hugel swales or anything like that. We follow the contours that are already in the land. So the land already has a contour. So we go out there with a, a dumpy level or a laser level or a low-tech A-frame level, which is plenty good enough in a suburban environment. We mark out the contours. Now we know where they are. We just build the beds on top of the contours. So you could even go into that system and just mark out your beds. Okay, I want them four foot wide. I want them to be this high. And just put your beds in on. Don't put side boxes and rails and all that stuff. Just build a pile of dirt. It'll work. It'll work. And we can still remove a little bit of soil in between them. And your hard-packed clay, folks, is not the problem most people think it is. 
It's really not. As soon as plants start to send roots down in there, as soon as you start to cover up the top of it, it starts to open up and it's, it, it's really an advantage because it has such an ability to hold water as long as it's not done in excess or you don't have a low spot where it basically turns into a small pond. So that, that's how I'd handle that. I'd either just don't try to go 18 inches deep because there's no need for it in a small-scale system, or I would just build raised beds on the contour lines themselves. And you're in Canada. Um, you're not going to deal with a lot of the dryness that we do elsewhere. You may not even need to worry about it. I mean, you may not even need to worry about it very much, except from the standpoint, if you want to build freestanding beds, putting them on contour will prevent erosion. But there's just there's just not a problem there. Because um, apparently you're still able to build on top of the area. It's not like this is an easement and you can't go there. And then utilities that are going to be in there, usually in your backyard, you're talking about you know, some service lines coming to your house and things like that. Call out the utility people and have them mark it so you know where it is and work around it is another option. They will they'll come out and they'll put paint on the ground and flags on the ground and they'll show you where, where everything is. I don't know how you do that in Canada, but I'm sure there's a way to do it. Here's an interesting question. Paddock shift in a permaculture farm. The design Jeff drew out at the end of the video looks absolutely ideal for those with larger acreages designed design, uh, to implement paddock shift systems with livestock. With deep tree-lined swales and forested valleys, how would one move animals from paddock to paddock? If you laid out pathways perpendicular to the contour along the ridges to move uh, animals and equipment up or down the slope, how would you negotiate the swales? Also, if valleys are forested up and down the slope, Would you simply build breaks to act as pathways between the paddocks for movement along the paddocks on the same contour? And let's just try to make this a little bit easier to understand. Your main access to move animals and equipment in a large, especially a large swale belt-based system, and we did kind of cover this to a degree. Anyway, as Jeff was saying yesterday, so we have a small-scaled swale, like a little swale that we would build for more like a garden or a small property. Well, the, you know, you're not going to be driving tractors or moving cattle around a, a half-acre property or a one-acre property in, in an urban or suburban or even semi-rural area. You know, you're going to be moving things around with like a wheelbarrow. So the swale itself becomes the access point. I think this is another place where people struggle. You don't plant in the swale. You plant in the bank of the swale downgrade, and you plant down from there. The swale takes the water, hydrates the land, and pushes it forward. So the swale itself is an access point. So everywhere you see a swale, it's going to be sized to the property. So when we look at something like a swale on a large property, a 100-acre-plus property like you saw in that design, you're talking about something built with like a 60-ton excavator that you could drive a, a full-size big tractor right down So your cattle can walk right down the swale as you're moving the cattle. So the, so the first thing to understand is you've got access everywhere a swale is. Now, we can put in some additional access that mostly follows contour lines. At some point, though, to get up and down grade, we're going to have to put some paths in. These paths, we're going to line with trees. We're going to funnel nutrient down them and use them in a very passive way, funneling the nutrient mainly to the sides of the paths, And that way the paths are, have reduced erosion, reduced exposure to wind, and that way we can move up and down through the system. But your primary means of getting across contour to contour in a large-scale design is going to be right down the middle of the swale. So then the question comes, well, how do you get the animals across the swale? And I think that we look at this swale and we go, well, it's uh, 
two meters wide. It's a meter deep. That's a big thing. A cow can walk right through there. A cow can walk right through there, especially at the sill point at the overflow. And what's that? What's right after the sill? The end of the swale. So it, you're never going to run a swale. Okay, to a point where it goes from one end of the property line to the other end of the property line, there's always going to be some breaks in it. So at some point, we have to look at some swales and maybe put in some, some, some places where you can kind of zigzag equipment, animals, and things in between the swale structures. And then there would be absolutely no reason that we couldn't build a swale and then make one piece of that swale an access point. And either put a, a bridge over it, which would be complicated, or sink down into the level of the swale, a culvert, and then flat over that part. So as that swale fills, that part has a little bit of a ridge that goes over the... Remember, it doesn't have to go over the bank of the swale, only the lip. This is where you might want to watch my permaculture series on, on YouTube where I explain this. People look at a swale and you see the dirt comes out of the swale and there's this big pile of dirt on the downgrade side. And they think that pile of dirt's what holds the water in. That pile of dirt does nothing to hold the water in. The swale itself does. If you took that pile of dirt away, you would lose all the wicking action, all that nice disturbed soil the plant into, right? But you wouldn't lose the effect of the swale. The swale where there's a lip, On the downgrade side, that lip is the high water line. And somewhere along that swale, we press down an area 10 centimeters. That's the sill, hard packed, two meters or more long, passive water overflow. The water, ne the water line never gets up to the bank in the swale. It just soaks into the ground. Remember, the swale's not hard packed. It's loose. The water can, it's not impounded. It soaks in, and that wet spot it creates downgrade, that big pile of loose soil we've piled up, wicks that moisture up into there. So that bank, the, this is the most important thing to understand about swales, and it makes all the, the confusion go away. The bank, the pile of dirt on the downhill side of the swale, in a properly constructed swale, does absolutely nothing to hold the water back. It simply holds the water in itself through a passive seepage into the ground. And I think that this is the number one thing that makes swales hard to understand. What I'm saying is if I dug a swale and I took all the dirt that came out of the swale away, okay, the swale would still function. It wouldn't function as well from a productivity standpoint. It would be a dumb thing to do. But hydraulically, the swale would still function because it's the surface level of the earth that sets the high point in the swale, and it's the sill that keeps it from getting there. The only time that changes is if the, the watershed event is so massive that the water comes up faster, then it can discharge through the sill, the low point. If that's the case, the swale's been designed wrong, there should have been maybe two sills or a longer sill system into it, and that bank of earth will hold the water back to a point But usually somewhere along the way, in a big enough system, you'll have a failure. And the swale bank will collapse. But it won't be like a dam breaking. It'll just kind of go, poof. It's something that even in a massive system you could fix with a wheelbarrow and a shovel. Because the, once that has that additional opening, that water starts to seep out. And basically nature creates its own sill because you have the whole system pacified. That might be kind of complicated in audio. But it's, it's really important to understand how the swale itself functions. And then a lot of questions like, how do you get access? Well, right through the middle of the swale. They're self-explanatory. 
Now, if you think I dig the swale and I plant into it, then you're like, well, where do I get access? Well, the swale itself, the floor of the swale, stays empty. Now, a lot of vegetative, ground cover, things like that might form in there, but you don't want trees growing up in the center of your swales. You want your drier, harder, harder, hardy trees on the uphill side if there's anything to the uphill side that you're actually cultivating, and your more tender trees down. That's why you want your first swale as high in the contour as you can get And work down from there, because once you do, once you do that, you just start chasing the moisture plume down the grade. Let's take another one. Here's kind of a complex one, but this is another situation where the concern is irrelevant because it's not possible. Um, hi, Jack. Thanks for what you do. My question: Would it be better for me to put in several small swales and mini ponds, or one large swale and pond in my front yard? Background information: I have a four-acre property that's on a gully with a small creek. It drops about five feet in the 50 feet from the road to the house. I have 300 feet of road footage. My average rainfall is 65 inches per year. At that point, I can almost say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You could dig a pond without a swale, and it's not going to dry up. Let's go to the rest of the question. Low month is 3.9 inches. High month is 8 inches. See attachment for pictures of property from above. I was going to make two swales with a small food forest below and pasture poultry above the swale on polyculture cover crop. My concern is the ponds will dry up too much for goldfish, but will have water long enough to breed mosquitoes. Um, as long as you build a pond of any size... I'm talking, you know, stuff like, you know, a 50-foot diameter pond. You couldn't dry a pond up in that environment if you tried. 65 inches of rain? Um, so it's really more what you want, um, Rick, than it is um, what is best. You, you can't mess this up. The key is, though, I'm looking at the picture, and the audience, you obviously can't see it, but I would say that 80% of this property is forested. And what I know about the Florida area is that's probably, and it's the part of Florida you're in, that's probably mostly pines. Um, so I wouldn't have a problem removing some of that, but most of that you want to leave. Um, this is uh, the good part. Most of the pines and the forest are above you. You have this really interesting contour um, that comes off of your, your east property boundary that forms basically uh, a C. It comes off one line and it comes down quite far and then goes back off the other. If you wanted to open that up, boy, could you put a lot of water into the system from that swell with a discharge point over by, you know, kind of as it comes back around the, the, the downhill side, uh, over by the eastern side of that contour before it gets back to your neighbor's property. And if you did that, you could push water across that other swale down to the front and then back and then discharge to the road. And with that, you could put in plenty of ponds and stuff. I would really look to the, sway, the, the contour behind your home uh, that's right at the forest break line is the area I would do most things because you have some area you can clear back there and work with and that other swale line, I'm, uh, that other contour line I'm talking about to work with. And you have one that goes all the way across the property. If you put in some access points and didn't timber the whole damn thing out, but just some access points and opened that swale up, um, you could really hydrate the hell out of this property. I don't think it's necessary, though. I think in your environment with your rainfall, if you want a pond, you can just get a conventional pond person to build it for you. And I think you don't even, I wouldn't, when you start talking about 60 inches or more of rainfall, all of my concerns about water and irrigation it pretty much goes out the window. 
Uh, you're at a point where you can pretty much do everything you want to do through polyculture uh, and and selecting the right plants and planting them at the right time of the year and very little irrigation. And the area of your property that you would do most of this stuff in is a relative, even though it's a four acre property, it's a relatively small area. I'd say it's about three quarters of an acre maximum that's kind of open out there in the front where the house is. So I, I wouldn't even worry about swales. I wouldn't even think about swales other than if you have a few ponds, you might want to put in some small swales to connect them and control the overflow and the discharge rate. Um, you actually might flood yourself. Uh, if you do this with too much swelling in this area, it's just, it's a massive amount of rainfall, dude. Three inches in your worst month is a huge amount of rainfall. Your property is already drought proof. Don't worry about your water. Don't worry about your ponds drying up. The only way you need to worry about a pond drying up is if you're putting in like, you know, like a, a 50 gallon pond, something like sticking a stock tank in the ground. If you're putting in a pond that's 20 feet across, There's, it's done properly and it's sealed right. There's no way on God's green earth it's going to dry up. You should be able to raise fish in those. You should be able to use them for a little bit of irrigation you might do at certain parts of the year. There's, you're, you're thinking too hard on this property in, in my personal opinion. Let's take another one. Next question is Barn Geek's question and it has to do with water at an access point in, in the excess. Uh, front yard in the, is, is heavily compacted clay soil. The water stays for a long time, turns the whole yard into mud. I'd like to plant trees in the front yard. Should I plant, put in some pond swales or mulch, all of the above? What do you think would be best? Here's a video for clarification. Um, I'll even put a link to the video in the show notes today so people can get an idea and a better understanding of my, um, my answer here. It's very difficult for me to give you a full answer without understanding the contour of the entire property. It, um, it, it, it looks as though the road is kind of on a high point that kind of slopes away in both directions. That may or may not be the case. My inclination would be to put in two ponds. Wait a minute. We've got a problem with water. We're going to put ponds in. Yeah, we're going to give the water a place to go. And I would look at putting ponds in that flank the access road. Long, somewhat narrow ponds built into the contour on both sides of the road. You may even, if one side of the road is significantly higher than the other side, if the road's not a fill, like it's not a cut and fill situation, if there, if there is a flow across the road, you may want to build the pond on the high side so that it can overflow and discharge with a culvert to the pond on the low side and then take that, that pond on the low side, put a good swale in off of that, And put your discharge point, your sill in that swale, far away from the area creating the problem, where the problem's created. Start putting the water into the land. Bringing trees in will help a lot. A tree is a hydraulic pump. So if we start putting trees in, a lot of that water is going to be taken up into the tree systems. But we've got to do something to get that water into a place where it can be utilized because what you have right now is, again, where the problem is the solution. When you look at the video, you've got this, it looks like a pond. The road itself looks like a pond. So what if there was a place for all of that water to have gone in, in the form of excavation of a couple long ponds? So the, the, try, trying to kind of see it down the road, I do a little bit of work on that road. And as you're excavating for that pond with that clay soil, you only need so much fill, and it's relatively flat. That means you're going to have a surplus. 
of material. So now we can crown the road a little bit more using that surplus. A good excavator operator would be able to take a lot of that material that you're using that's not necessary for impoundment out of your two dams, and maybe it's even four dams, you know, a dam, a break, and a dam on one side, a dam, a break, and a dam on the other side, and let that water go into those depressions, accumulate there. Now we've got an asset. Now we've got standing water, fairly, from the looks of the properties, a fairly large property. Two to four really nice dams that we can put fish in, do aquaculture in and things like that, and a place for all that water to go. Now we come in with swales that come out of those dams that help fill them when it rains, and when they overflow, it discharges back up from the swales. The swales take the water away from this point that's causing the most problems for you and allow it to discharge into a more forested system more capable of dealing with it. That's the best I can do with the information that I have, but that's the approach that I would take. Excavate, hold, versus let it sit on the surface, give the water a place to go, turn that into an asset, take the additional water beyond what you can hold in those dams and discharge it away from the access point. Remember, swales do a lot of things. They don't just hold water, they move water. And we can move excess a kilometer away with a good swale. It all depends on where we put that sill. So if you think about the place where you have all that muck and mud, there was a nice swale system in there, right? And if the water's coming, it might be that as I'm looking at your screen, the water's coming downhill from the right of my screen. It's what it looks like to me. And then it continues downhill the other way. If that up there was swaled in before the road, and that followed down along the road and went off some, you know, somewhere else where you don't have this problem, and down away from that point is where you put your sill and your swale, then all your water will accumulate there, fill your ponds, what's beyond the capacity of the ponds and the swale, would then discharge as far away as you want it to, wherever is best suited. And at some point you may need, with that road where you have it, without putting in a completely new access point, you may want to put in a culvert to allow the discharge either pond to pond or swale to swale underneath the road. And that will probably solve your problem. And again, we can build that road up quite a bit, with the material out of those ponds, but when you do that, when you do that, you're effectively creating a dam, especially in clay soil. You need to think about whichever side of that road is higher elevation, where you're going to let that water through. And it might be multiple points. It might be two or three culverts to do it right. You might even put in some sleuth boxes where you can hold more water in the uphill side if you do get a dry season, where at some point you might actually use the surplus water on the uphill side to help recharge the dams on the downhill side by opening a sluice box. It's something you probably want to get a very experienced excavator operator involved with that has experience with building this type of, of stuff. Um, but that's kind of the angle that I would take with it going forward from there. Uh, here's a very challenging question because it, it poses almost an ethical dilemma. Do we cut regrowth forests? And, and the answer is generally we don't want to do that. This was an ethical dilemma that I was faced with at our property in Arkansas. There was a lot of potential to utilize some of the acreage, but it required felling an awful lot of trees. And they were uh, primarily 15 uh, to 25-year-old regrowth oak and hickory. And when I have a forest system like that, it's very hard for me to fire up the Husqvarna and start taking down good trees, especially on sloped land. I don't see much about a slope here, so it may be a little bit 
easier to deal with. Let's let's look at this. Question, how do I create a food forest in an established hardwood forest? And the answer is usually you don't. I'm just going to be honest with you, Nikki. Uh, I purchased my land in the last fall. I have a five-acre hardwood forest with a small off-grid cabin in Zone 4 in Wisconsin. This is not a, there's not an open part of the land except a quarter acre where the cabin is located and an overgrown garden space. I like the privacy of this land and all the trees. However, I would like to turn it into a food forest. <sighs> should I cut down existing trees in order to plant fruit trees, or should I just cut the dead and super young trees and plant fruit trees? I'm concerned about the new fruit trees getting enough light. Your suggestion and input is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Um, this is what you have to decide. Are you willing to kill to grow? I mean, that's that's the dilemma that you're faced with. The thing is, I think that a lot of people, when they hear food forest, always want to start thinking about acres and acres and acres of food forest. If you think about the project we talked about at the beginning of the show, it's a 1.1 acre food forest. Now, that's pretty significant. Now, if you look at the uh, solar aspect of your property, it's quite conceivable that you could go in and clear something along the lines of a acre, And do so in kind of a strip fashion along a contour and put in a swale when you do. So you just have the equipment for this. Um, a lot of the trees that you take down might be used uh, for uh, construction of other components and systems on the land. And thereby you're providing your own material and you're not cutting things just to cut things down. And, and maybe that could work. Um, if you ask Jeff what what will make you cut down regrowth forest, and his answer, I, I can tell you what it would be from from his lectures in the PDC that I, I you know watched from end to end to create ponds. So, if you really wanted to do this this system justice, what you might do is find a good pond site. And that's where you would basically remove most things. I know that you're saying, well, that doesn't really allow me to do a food forest because now I've got this pond where the trees would have been that I've cleared. But the primary, the primary place that you get abundance in any system is the edge. Use the edge and value the marginal. That's a permaculture principle. So a pond put in the right way, then would have a bank system because you're not going to have your trees right up to the edge of the pond. You're going to have this cleared bank. And you could then put in edible plants, productive plants, all the way around this pond system using that edge going with, especially the, you will have one part of that edge that's going to face, uh, face south. Uh, the northern bank of the pond. That might be where I do my most clearing, the northern bank of the pond. Hopefully the contours work out where you can do this. Now, plan in a strip of a couple hundred feet, kind of wrapping around so your stuff that needs the most sunlight goes on the dead north bank of the pond. And as you need less solar aspect for your plants you choose, come further out to the east and the west contour of the, the, the bank of the pond and plant a multi-stage seven-layer system there. It will be more than you can probably afford to plant in a single season. It will produce more food than you will probably be able to use. And now you'll have a protein source in fish in your pond, and you're probably looking at something along the lines of a half-acre pond. Now, if you have a five-acre property and you clear an acre to do this with, you still have four wooded acres. I would do this behind the house. Hopefully it's uphill from the home, but I don't know the contours of your land. And I would do this more toward the center if the contours will let you. What you then have 
is a highly productive food system, nutrient source, swale. So you may have to cut some strips, some open up some strips into your land, but you're not clearing. You're just cutting this long strip for the swale. That will improve the forest below. It won't harm the forest above. Maybe you'll end up with some pockets where you can go in and plant some productive trees. If you end up with a glade, a glade is anything more than, let's say, 20 feet of open space in the forest. Plant stuff there, it'll grow. It'll have enough, it'll grow. Plant more than you need and let the forest nurse it as it comes up into, to recanopy. The only thing you'll have to do then is keep an eye on the, the, the natives that may be better adaptive than what you've planted and keep chopping and dropping those so that you advantage what you've put in. And now we have a completely sheltered pond with a, with a south-facing bank getting great solar aspect, long days, water feature. That's how I would do this because if we don't put a pond in, then I have a lot of concern with cutting down that type of forest. But if we put the, why am I okay with it when we put the pond in? The amount of wildlife and biodiversity that we will draw in by putting in a half acre pond into a property like this, or two quarter acre ponds. It all depends on how the design works out, okay? Maybe it's two quarter acres and a tenth acre pond. It all depends on how things are set up in there. And a swale system connecting as many of them as possible. The, the, the amount we, of, of benefit that we will give to nature in that system will far exceed the value of the timber that comes out of it. And we may be able to sell some of the timber, locally sourced timber, to environmentally conscious customers, sells for a lot more than fir and pine does to people buying it 800,000 miles away. So what we can't use we may be able to sell, what we can't use that we sell we may be able to earn a profit on, and that money may be used to help fund the project. Th that's about the only way I would work that into the, the type of system that you've described. All right, let's, uh, let's look at some questions. Uh, another question here. I love the second video, looking for land now, very helpful. However, with all the water catchment in ponds, plus permanent water at the flat part of the land, is there a con concern for mosquito infestation in areas of the world? that have that problem. In some states, the county will come out and spray your pond to kill larvae. That's a problem that you need to address. That I'll acknowledge. That's a problem. You don't want them spraying it because they think they need to. I don't want that in my water. How does one keep mosquitoes down in ponds that don't flow? Is there a natural mosquito repellent, i.e. plants that can be planted around ponds? Cultivated frogs would help but not abate the problem. West Nile virus is a real threat to humans and livestock. What is the solution? Let's start out with the real threat of West Nile virus. In 2012, a whopping total of 247 people in the United States died from West Nile virus. Almost none of them died from West Nile virus. They had West Nile virus and had other things that compromised their systems that ended in their death. Conversely, about 1,000 people a year in the state of Illinois die in automobile accidents. One state, 1,000 people in automobile accidents... The entire country, 200-odd people from West Nile virus. It is not the threat the TV told you. It also says about 5,000 people contracted West Nile virus in 2012. When I look up the CDC statistics, do you know what that number is? A lie. There were probably tens, if not 100,000 or more people that contracted the disease and never even noted, knew they had it. They thought they had a flu or a cold or something else. It is not the real threat that you have been told. It is not. It is not. It is not. I would spend more time worrying about buckling my seatbelt than whether or not I'm going to get West Nile virus. 
I mean, I, you are more likely to die from cancer than you are from West Nile virus. You're probably more likely, if you swim in the ocean all the time, to get eaten by a shark. I mean, really, it's just, it's not the threat that people make it out to be. Uh, in certain parts of the world, I am much more concerned about the threats of things like malaria than West Nile virus. See, West Nile virus sounds spooky and scary because it's West Nile. Everything from Africa is deadly. That's where Ebola comes from. Guys, come on. We're talking about something that has a lethality rate on par with the average freaking flu. All right, it's not the danger that you've been told. Let go of it now, because let's take the actual issue. It's called fish. If you have lots of fish in water, you will have almost no mosquitoes in water. And all we need are minnows. Yes, if you have minnows in water, I mean, if you go to a pond in Florida, where I grew up, Uh, there's ponds everywhere. Every apartment complex has them, what have you. And there's plenty of mosquitoes in Florida. They're not breeding in those ponds. They're breeding in the marshes. Okay? A mosquito, uh, the, the perfect breeding ground for a mosquito would be something like a cattle hoof print in clay soil. Little pocket of hot, stinky, stagnant water. It's too small for a fish to live in. And it's there long enough for the mosquito to complete its life cycle. A pond with fish, specifically minnows or goldfish or something like that as part of the aquatic system, has almost no mosquito larva present in it at all. Um, as a kid, I had a big interest in, in biology, in marine biology, freshwater biology, things like that growing up there. And we would always get pond water and look at it in microscopes. You know what I never found in a pond that had minnows in it? Mosquito larva in any quantity. But you know where you'd find them? In, uh, you know, the old, I don't know if they even make because I don't smoke, but cigarettes used to have this plastic wrapper around them. And occasionally when we were doing little research projects and stuff, you'd find one of those with water in it in a lawn somewhere. And if you pulled, a lot of times they'd have water caught in it from rain, and in there were mosquito larvae. Uh, tires. It was almost inevitable that if you took a sample of water out of a tire, that was left out and filled up with rain, they would have mosquitoes in it. Um, if you have small bodies of water that do not have fish, uh, there are BT uh, dunks, which are bacterial thrombosis, uh, which is a natural occurring bacterium. Uh, a lot of people are scared of it now because Monsanto genetically engineers it into corn to kill corn borers and stuff like that. Uh, genetically engineered, bad. BT itself, not so much. Used in organic gardening all the time. So if you have a body of water that you're particularly concerned about mosquitoes, a small body of water, too small for fish, throw a BT dunk in there once a month during the summer and then rock on with life. Um, in a pond, build uh, mosquito, I mean, uh, build fish into the system. There's no reason to have a pond sans fish. Even if you don't want fish for protein, put minnows in. You know, put just a bunch of it. Go find, I mean, I know that this is probably technically against game laws in some states, But you get a dip net and you go out to a local pond full of native minnows of some sort and you dip up a bunch of the little guys and you throw them in your pond. And then you don't have a mosquito problem. It's not the problem. This is the pro See, this is just like, remember I ranted recently about kids not having chicken with bones in it because the chicken uh, was gross to them, but it was because they were brought up by parents who thought they would die on a chicken bone. We have become so overly safety conscious in this country. And if you go to places like Thailand or Vietnam, there's water everywhere. There's almost no mosquitoes anywhere. And my source on that's Bill Mollison. And he said because if you, if you give an Asian enough water, 
to, to put a fish in it. Don't put a, if it's a little bitty fish, don't put a fish in there. They're fish people. And between the fish and the ducks that they have in these systems, there's almost no mosquito activity in a place where you would expect to be overrun with mosquitoes. Where mosquitoes are breeding is, is not ponds. It's these little shallow depressions. Mosquitoes are, honest to God, there are places in a lawn where a mosquito will breed. There'll be these little depressions that'll have enough moisture in there that wigglers can, you know, little larvae can survive. That's part of why you walk through a lawn in the evening in a place where it's rained a lot recently and you have so many mosquitoes come up out of the grass. Mosquitoes like small bodies of stagnant water. Very, very small. Too small for a fish. Anything big enough for a fish, stick a fish in it and stop worrying about it. Uh, let me cram one more in and we'll wrap up for the day. Here's a great question. I actually wanted to ask Jeff this question, but just didn't get it in in time. Do trees conserve more water than they use? I.e., will crops planted in paddocks surrounded by trees produce more than they would without trees? In the video, Jeff indicates that modern ag uses too few trees. I live in Kansas with an average rainfall of 29.4 inches a year with lots of sun, wind, and very little slope, and temps above 100 degrees in the summer. Thanks, Craig. Um, isn't it funny how in America we think what a little rainfall is is ridiculous? 30 inches, you're little, it's the same rainfall I get, dude. Um, I get 28 to 32 inches on average a year here in the uh, in the North Texas area. You get 29 inches a year, probably right at 28 to 32 inches depending on the year. There's plenty of rainfall. It's, it's, and when you, when you go throughout the entire year, it's playing rainbow, 100 degrees. <laughs> you know what? We're gonna, I think it's gonna be 88 today. I mean, it's plenty of heat here too. I mean, it's just, it, here's the thing. We have this belief that somehow every system is unique. And the reality is they are, but not to the level that every person I talk to says, oh, not where I'm at. And, Okay, so I know you're not really saying that. I just kind of want to bring that up because every well over here we have clay, and the guys like over here we have rock, and the rock guys like I wish I had clay, and the the clay guys like that rock's easy to work in because it's not we're talking about slab, we're talking about gravel and built in with sand and all, and it, 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 the grass is greener. Okay, so on trees and water conservation, it's multi it's multifold. The first thing we have to understand is that if we have trees. It's not about whether they're directly conserving moisture because they're using a lot of water. A tree uses a lot of water. But that tree system is stopping erosion. Stopping erosion allows topsoil to be built. Topsoil that's well built with lots of humus in it and organic matter in it better utilizes the moisture that's there. So it's not even about whether or not the tree somehow makes moisture or whatever. It actually creates an environment where the moisture is retained for a longer period of time. There's more to it than that, though. If we have trees, forested belt systems surrounding paddocks, especially in our climate, and this is where people don't realize the advantage we have in the, in the temperate climate versus there's so much permaculture work that's been done in the tropics, we tend to think, well, it's better for the tropics. It's easier than tropics. And, and Jeff alluded to this. We have something that they don't. In the tropics, part of why they're so concerned about so many leguminous nitrogen-fixing species is because those trees are largely evergreen. They don't drop the leaf at anywhere near the level in the tropics that they do here. So chop and drop was invented. So everybody goes in and takes these food forest systems they're building in the tropics and chop and drop every year until those legumes give up the ghost and the other species take over. We can emulate that here, but it's not as critical, especially when we build these forested belt systems around our open spaces. Because what happens every year when the days get shorter and the nights get colder, even in the south down here in Texas? The trees do what? They drop all their leaves. How much organic matter 
goes to the ground when one mature oak drops its leaves. Who's raked leaves? Anybody here ever rake leaves? Right? Think about how many leaves you rake off one small postage stamp suburban lot. Now think about 10 acres of oaks and, and other trees, whether they're productive or what we call non-productive. Doesn't matter. How much organic matter, how much biomass hits that ground? And a lot of it goes nowhere. When it falls in amongst the trees, it kind of locks up. It forms a humus layer, and it begins to break down through our winters. Now, that is basically Mother Nature composting. And if you go into a mature system, even just a belt system of trees, and you pull the leaves back, what's the soil look like? It always looks the same, black, beautiful compost. Now, if that system is part of an interconnected system using water flows and nutrient flows, nutrient pathways, swales, ponds, the whole nine yards, a lot of that nutrient that's in the forest is slowly leaching into the ground. So not only is the paddock now able to develop this topsoil much faster because we've reduced the erosion of water flow and wind flow by creating breaks with the trees, now the forest system is creating its own nutrient flow into the paddock. Now, if we're putting animals in there, now we're, we're, we're pushing organic matter down into the soil. We're dropping nitrogen into the soil from the animal waste. We're shifting them around. We're giving the land ample time to recover in between. Now we've got deep, spongy soil. And it all starts because we're holding the system together with the trees. So the answer is yes. I just wanted to explain to you how it works. I didn't say, yeah, don't worry about it. Go on. No, this is how this system works. Now, As we continue to do this on a large scale, trees actually generate rainfall. And Mollison did work back in the 80s that you could analyze the type of mo the water molecule itself. And basically the water that was created by rainfall from trees versus rainfall from evaporation of large lakes and, and oceans was slightly denser. Which everybody said he was a crazy old man and back then he wasn't even that old yet, right? Well, then, you know, turn around and, 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 you know, four or five years ago, science comes up with this brilliant idea that rainfall creates trees and you can determine the difference in where the rainfall was created by the density of the water molecule, which is beyond my chemical understanding, but basically it corroborated what Bill was saying. So if we do enough trees, we actually increase rainfall. Now there's another component to this. If we have lots of trees in a system, then every night, There's a lot of dew that forms. Even in dry climates, quite a bit of dew forms on trees. Those trees are actually capable of using some of that moisture directly through the pores in their leaves, but a lot of that moisture drops. Okay, then, wherever the trees are, there's shade. The trees reduce the evaporation, which has an effect even on the open land because the overall loss of moisture from the entire... So it's like no matter what you do, yes, trees make the system more water efficient, but it's not just because they have like this one direct thing. What we have to understand with permaculture, and what I want to finish up today, is everything's interconnected. Everything's a web. And it's this one component that we look at and we go, well, if we just plant trees, it'll get better. And it will, but it's how we plant them, why we plant them, how many different ways they interact. So we don't disturb those interactions in other areas. If you want rivers to flow again, in land that used to have rivers and now the rivers are dry, plant lots of trees, start grazing the open area with cattle on a paddock shift, and the rivers come back. The streams come back. They run all year. That's all that's done is tree planting. And in some cases, it's not even tree planting. It's just animal grazing. And by controlling where the animals graze and keeping them off of just a few areas where trees begin to emerge, 
you'll end up creating savanna. So the trees will be restored by simply not letting the cattle graze the certain strips you want them to return and pushing them through in high density in other places. And Alan Savory's done this. It, it, parts of the world that people would say, there's nothing that can be done. There's absolutely nothing that can be done there. And all they've done is graze with cattle and restored systems. But tree, if you look at it, he doesn't talk a lot about the tree component, but if you look at every picture that he shows you, in his before and afters, in his presentations, you'll see the tree systems come up around the paddocks. And they're part of that nutrient flow. They're part of that soil retention. So yes, trees conserve more water than they use because they are part of an interconnected system that's designed to function that way. With that, I am going to wrap things up today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I did Jeff's questions justice. I know some of these got a little bit specific and nebulous, and maybe this isn't the best generic show I've ever done, but hopefully those of you that were like, I don't really care about that guy's particular situation, can extrapolate from the way I'm analyzing this was what permaculture is really all about. There's a reason I can give you answers to these questions. It's about the design science that is in permaculture. And it's something that if we understand it better, if we work on it more, if we develop it better, we become better troubleshooters and problem solvers in our daily lives and all walks of things. This is the mentality that I use to the solutions that I come up for multiple things, not just agriculturally based things, business based things, economically based things. I believe it's a, just a better way of thinking. It, understanding the interconnected relationships. Then you don't get bamboozled by things like, oh, the Fed will make everything okay, because you intrinsically understand that a linear system cannot handle the dynamic nature of the real world. And sooner or later, one line in that linear system will break, and it's like a fishing line, and it's gone. To build a system, you must build it with redundancy and resiliency. And if we build a net, and you cut even 10% of the lines in a net, the net will still harvest fish. That's what we're doing with the permaculture system. That's the troubleshooting mentality to come out. And to not get married to what you want, but to look at the landform and the shape of the landform and understand what's already there. If you look at what Jeff did with the videos that, we, that I shared with you from the weekend, it's like a lot like sculptors say when they sculpt a piece of marble. And somebody says, wow, you created that. And they say, no, it was there. I just uncovered it. Landforms are even easier to sculpt because a goalie is a goalie, a contour is a contour, uh, a constants like water moving at right angle to contour, where the sun rises and where the sun sets. These are constants. And then we can just fit into that system what its potential is. And if you start looking at, and this is something I want for everybody that asked a question, whether it did or not, did not get answered today or yesterday by Jeff, to understand. Your personal situation will always be the most difficult for you to find a solution to. I found this on my own property. I look at something, and I know if it was somebody else's property, I'd be like, do this, 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 and this. It'll be fine. But when it's your own, you do what I kind of alluded to here with Craig. You always think that your system, well, mine's different. Mine's unique. No. Water moves at right angle to contour. In our hemisphere, the sun rises in the east, sets in the west, and gets lower in the sky in winter and higher in the sky in summer. And if you're facing south, you're going to get your best solar aspect. Your primary winds are wherever your primary winds are. Your soil type is your soil type. Your rainfall is your rainfall. Your latitude is your latitude. It's all the same. It's all the same. It's all the same. We just have to apply logic and reason And stop worrying about things that everybody else worries about. I talked about this last week when somebody said, you know, I bought this piece of property, I'm starting to, and the guy neighbors like it'll never work. Stop using the mentality of the people that say it won't work or here's all your problems. 
In permaculture, the problem is the solution. So look at every problem as a, as a potential solution and analyze it for what is this problem telling me about the way we do things versus the way nature does things, and answers will just begin to appear. And on the note of the people saying it'll never work, it'll never the Eeyores, let me tell you something, a quote I heard a long time ago I've always loved. People that say something can't be done should stay the hell out of the way of people that are already getting it done. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seen our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution is you